Welcome to the 83rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Like many waterways in farm country, the Chippewa River in western Minnesota has some major pollution problems. An increasing amount of soil, nutrients, and chemicals have been making their way into the Chippewa in recent years. This is not just a localized problem. The Chippewa flows into the Minnesota River, which in turn empties into the Mississippi River. And contamination in the Mississippi is creating havoc all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. It's become clear in recent years that if rivers like the Mississippi are to ever make major progress on the water quality front, all those smaller watersheds that feed into major waterways will require more perennial plant cover. Grasses, forages, and trees, for example, are needed on the land year-round to keep soil, nutrients, and applied farm chemicals from running off the land and into the water. But the Chippewa, like many rural streams, is a working watershed. Almost three-quarters of its 1.3 million acres is farmed, and most of that agriculture is based on production of annual row crops, which only cover the land a few months out of the year. The good news is that a growing pile of research shows that farming practices that utilize perennial plant cover on just a small percentage of a watershed's landscape can produce major water quality benefits. Of course, farmers have to make a living, and in order for them to make water-friendly practices pay, they need to be rewarded in the marketplace. It is this recognition that has prompted the Land Stewardship Project and the Chippewa River Watershed Project to launch an exciting new initiative that is pursuing ways of utilizing local foods and biomass markets to promote environmentally friendly farming systems in the Chippewa watershed. It's hoped that the so-called Chippewa 10% Project will serve as a national model for utilizing market-based working lands conservation in rural watersheds. I recently talked with some of the people who are involved with the Chippewa 10% Project. First, Kyleen Olson, Executive Director of the Chippewa Watershed Project, described some of the water quality problems in the basin and talked about how the Chippewa 10% Project offers a unique approach to solving them. In um, lower sub-basins that are mostly um, traditional agriculture, we see lots of nutrients, high levels of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus, and um, throughout the whole watershed we see high levels of bacteria. In those lower watersheds, one of the sub-basins actually has had, we're starting to see a trend of a little bit less nitrogen. Um, in our upper sub-basins where we have, uh, it's more, there's more slopes, rolling hills, we're starting to see an increase in sediment. The Chippewa 10% project is bringing more of a lifestyle change to improve water quality, uh, improve the ecosystem benefits, rather than in the past where we have just used traditional best management practices, made cost share available to landowners to implement conservation practices on their land. Here we're trying to affect change to increase the perennial landscape of the watershed. By increasing that, empowering landowners or farmers to either grow perennial crops for biomass or local food production, and at the same time help to create the markets for them for those products that they will produce. And that is not something that's being done in the water quality arena right now. You know, coming up with the economics that makes sense for landowners to make those changes is a huge piece of it. Next, I asked Julia Ehlers-Ness, a Land Stewardship Project organizer who is coordinating the Chippewa 10% initiative, about the importance of the 10% name. Well, the, the 10% is based on studying that has been going on in the watershed for about 10 years now. It started out as, as kind of observation of the, some of the scientists who are working on monitoring water quality in this area and recognizing that if there was just, 
you know, a, between a 5 and 10% increase in the amount of land that was actually in some sort of perennial cover that we could then see a dramatic increase in, um, you know, water quality issues. And especially if we can target it to fields that are especially sensitive to, um, like, water erosion and things like that. It, it's it, it's something that that pe you talk to people and they, it's like yeah this is doable this is this is doable and but it's really going to take you know a lot of cooperation from a lot of different players within our, the, you know within the communities. John Westra, an associate professor of agricultural economics at Louisiana State University, who has done extensive research on the economics of conservation farming. Describe to me the key role financial considerations play when farmers are adopting water-friendly farming systems. Economics has always been a part of any of these decisions that farmers make in terms of what they're going to do on the land, and that's a big driver in terms of um, farm management decisions, what kind of crops they're going to raise, what kind of livestock they're going to raise. Uh, all of those things go into play in terms of um, that decision-making process. Now, in terms of this particular project, that's always been a part of it. We've always been interested in, um, at least the team has been interested in, an economic component as well as the, uh, the environmental, the agronomic, the livestock component to it because they realize it's, it's a, an integrated problem, an integrated uh, project that we're looking at. So first of all, we need to look at the costs and returns of the specific farming practices, the crops and the livestock operations that are being uh, currently used and that might be used in the watershed. And when I say might be used, I mean usually practices that are, that are being used by some producers, but may, maybe not very many in this particular watershed, or maybe in a watershed just down the road. And so most of the things that we look at, most of the systems that we're looking at, aren't necessarily completely new, even in that watershed. It's just particularly new to a particular producer. And so what we're trying to do is look at if more producers used a certain set of practices that might improve environmental benefits like water quality or air quality or the number of birds in that particular part of the of the uh, the watershed then how would that affect the farmers bottom line and how would it affect overall income in the watershed and the economy of the local communities in that watershed because all of those are part of these part of the the equation that we're looking at here uh, for example some of the things that some farmers may be doing and others may not is as simple as a change in tillage and it isn't a lot in terms of um, a change in practice overall but it can have a big effect in terms of it might be less costly to farm that way the farmer might be using less fuel or might it might cost him or her less uh, in terms of repair maintenance on their farming equipment, their tillage equipment, for example, because they're, they have fewer tillage operations, for example. So the overall cost of production might be slightly lower. It might be just a few dollars an acre, but it might be enough, uh, assuming that they maintain their yields, which a lot of research and, and in this particular study we saw happens, uh, that would be enough if you multiplied that over 
10,000 acres to have a significant difference in the watershed in terms of overall economic impact. Part of the part of the thing to remember is that farmers aren't working in a vacuum and they're working, they're responding to market signals, they're responding to policy that uh, we have uh, in the United States in terms of the commodity programs, the conservation programs. All of those provide incentives or, or disincentives or, or basically an incentive to not do something and uh, as well as markets. Markets send signals to farmers to do certain things as well and to do more of something or to do, or to do less of something. And what we looked at in, um, in that particular project in the past and what we're going to continue to do in this particular project is look at how the combination of those um, market signals, those incentives from USDA commodity programs or potentially other programs that we might be able to implement in this watershed, how they might encourage farmers to do um, practices that might have a little bit more environmental benefit, might be able to help uh, create more uh, viable rural communities because you've got local purchasing, more local purchasing of inputs into their production process, or, mo or more local sales of commodities in their community to local restaurants, uh, schools, uh, or just general consumers in that community. And what kind of an impact those kind of uh, changes in the current system, what those might have in terms of the overall economy in those areas. Finally, I talked to Sandy Olson-Loy, Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs at the University of Minnesota Morris, a four-year school near the Chippewa. She discussed how an institution like the university could serve as a market for food produced utilizing environmentally friendly farming methods. Our University of Minnesota Morris master plan calls for us to source up to 50% of our foods locally and to have them raised through sustainable practices by the year 2013. And so we're interested in partnering with people from our local farm community and looking at how we can meet that goal. The goal was set to really reduce our carbon footprint as a campus and to think about the environmental impact of our foods and also as a way for us to reinvest in our local community and make sure that our food dollars are are making a difference and going as directly to farmers as possible. Um, I think having enough farmers actually producing food that they want to sell directly to consumers or to institutions is a bit of a challenge. And then as you look at the scale of institutional food sourcing and procurement, we feed a high number of people every day, and um, it takes a lot of fruits and vegetables and meats and grains to, um, to feed that many people. So figuring out how to um, buy enough things from local producers without also taking over the market. I think that people are thinking about the connections between their food and food sourcing and carbon footprint, carbon impact, and also health issues in a greater way. I don't know that they've yet put it all together with other significant environmental impacts as well, including water quality. Um, I think that will potentially be one of the conversation topics around the Chippewa 10% project. We have seen a lot of change in terms of people's interest in knowing where their food is coming from, know the farmers, knowing the farmers who are raising their foods, and knowing how it was raised and that the land and the people connected to it and the animals were all treated with respect and with care through that process. I think river quality is one more step in that in that equation.
For more information on the Chippewa 10% Project, see www.chippewa10.org. That's Chippewa, the number 10, dot org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.